Welcome to Hallowed, Exploring the Lives of the Saints. Episode 23, Apostle of Ireland. I'm your host, Tom Thorne, and in this podcast, I'll be taking you on a journey through the lives, adventures, trials, and triumphs of the great heroes of the Christian faith. Today, as we approach his feast day next week, We're talking about one of the big ones, a boy who escaped a life of slavery, only to return as a grown man to the land of his servitude, to become one of the greatest heroes in the history of the church. I'm referring, of course, to the Apostle of Ireland, St. Patrick himself. We've done a few episodes now set in the early Middle Ages the centuries of chaos following the collapse of the Roman Empire in Western Europe. And Patrick's story takes place in this same era. If you'd like to learn more about these so-called Dark Ages, you can go back and listen to episodes 5, 12, and 20 on Saints Brigid, Augustine of Canterbury, and Benedict and Scholastica, respectively. For today, it's enough to know that the Dark Ages get their name as much from the scarcity of written sources as they do from the poverty and violence that characterized life for many people in those years. We simply don't know nearly as much as we'd like to about the age in which Patrick lived, as relatively little evidence has come down to modern historians from that time. What we can say is that Patrick lived sometime in the 5th century, the very same century in which Rome herself would fall. Most of what we know about his life comes from a tiny handful of writings, most importantly, an autobiography written by Patrick himself, known as The Confession, along with a few texts written by Irish monks in the following centuries. Much more of what we think we know about Patrick comes to us from folklore, the very rich tradition of storytelling for which Ireland is famous. But as you'll see in today's episode, when dealing with any of these sources, it's not always clear where history ends and legend begins. This is, of course, a familiar problem for anyone who's listened to our episodes on the early church. And while I'll try not to get too caught up in the weeds of what we know and how, I think it's only fair to tell you from the start that much of this story is tentative. Anyway, on with the tale. As you may already know, the Apostle of Ireland was not in fact Irish by birth. He was British, or as we should now say, Welsh. Patricius, or Patrick, was born somewhere along the west coast of Britain in the late 4th or perhaps the early 5th century, around the time that the Roman Empire was abandoning Britain, leaving the island province to fall into anarchy 
at the hands of barbarian raiders. You can hear a lot more about this time of turmoil in episode 12 on St. Augustine of Canterbury. Like many Britons of that age, Patrick saw himself as a Roman citizen. His father was a public official, known as a decurion, as well as a deacon in the church, while his grandfather had actually been a priest. Bear in mind that married men could be ordained as priests in the early Catholic Church. That wouldn't change until the 11th century. Coming from such a distinguished local family, Patrick would have grown up in relative wealth and privilege, though in the tumultuous world of the early Middle Ages, that didn't necessarily mean much. He tells us in his confession that although he was raised in the Christian faith, he was not a devout boy. Looking back at his childhood, he would say in his own words, quote, at that time, I did not know the true God. End quote. All that changed at the age of 16, when Patrick was kidnapped by raiders along the west coast of Britain and sold as a slave in Ireland, the land of the Gael, which is simply an old Celtic word for pirates. So if you're a fan of international talk like a pirate day, maybe you should try learning Gaelic. As you may recall from episode 5 on St. Brigid, the ancient Irish were a race of roving seafarers, feared throughout the British Isles and beyond for much the same cause as the Vikings in later centuries. Their voyages were vast, and their victims many, but none were greater than Patrick. Our boy was shipped to the north or northwest of Ireland, either County Antrim or County Mayo, depending on the tradition, where he was bought by a local tribal chieftain named Milku, and put to work as a shepherd tending his master's flocks. It was only then, Patrick tells us, that he began to realize the importance of God in his life. In the saint's own words, quote, It was there that the Lord opened up my awareness of my lack of faith. Even though it came about late, I recognized my failings. So I turned with all my heart to the Lord my God, and he looked down on my lowliness and had mercy on my youthful ignorance. End quote. I'm sure a lot of us can relate to those words. It was in the course of his daily labors, out in the bleak hills of Heather, that Patrick came to know God. He says again, quote, After I arrived in Ireland, I tended sheep every day, and I prayed frequently during the day. More and more the love of God increased, and my sense of awe before God. Faith grew, and my spirit was moved, so that in one day I would pray up to one hundred times, and at nights perhaps the same. I even remained in the woods and on the mountain, and I would rise to pray before dawn in snow and ice and rain. I never felt the worse for it, and I never felt lazy. As I realize now, 
the spirit was burning in me at the time. End quote. Six years passed this way, with Patrick growing ever more intimate in his love for God as he carried out his duties as a shepherd. Then, one night as he slept, he heard a voice telling him that he would soon return to his native land of Britain, that indeed, a ship was waiting to take him home. When he awoke from his dream, he knew that this ship lay some 200 miles away, presumably across the whole width of Ireland and up or down the coast, a long journey no matter what route was taken. But he was confident that God was calling him to go. So Patrick ran away from his master, Milhu, and traveled across the wilds of Ireland in search of the ship from his vision. Surprisingly enough, Patrick tells us nothing about this journey, epic and difficult though it must have been to traverse 200 miles of bogs, forests, and mountains on foot, with hardly a road beneath his feet. Patrick just tells us that he found the ship, and after some trouble with the pagan captain, who initially turned him away, he was given a place on board. After three days of sailing across the Irish Sea, the party landed somewhere on the coast of Britain. They continued their journey through the wilderness, Patrick doesn't say where they were going, but after a month, they got lost and ran out of food. The pagan captain turned to Patrick and taunted him to do something about their hunger. Quote, What about this, Christian? You tell us that your God is great and all-powerful. Why can't you pray for us? End quote. So Patrick did exactly that, and immediately thereafter a herd of pigs appeared in front of them. The party feasted well that night. They gave the greatest thanks to God and were never hungry again on their travels. Owing to the chaos of the age and the lack of maps, it took Patrick a few more years of wandering through the wild and war-torn lands of Britain before he finally found his way home. Just imagine his joy when he saw his parents for the first time in nearly a decade. Just try to imagine theirs. They welcomed him back at long last, and begged him never to leave home again. I'm sure that Patrick, now in his mid-twenties, after all those years away, must have been keen to agree. But God had other plans for him. After Patrick had gone to sleep in his parents' house, he received yet another vision, this time of a priest bearing letters from the people of Ireland, imploring him to return and share the true faith with them. Even if he might have shrugged it off as just a dream, several more like it followed, confirming that the Holy Spirit was calling on Patrick to bring the light of Christ to Ireland. Perhaps with a heavy heart, but urged on by the will of God, Patrick realized that he could not stay home forever. It must have broken the hearts of his parents, but he felt that he had been given a holy mission to go back to the land of his enslavements. And so, 
no doubt with a very tearful parting. Patrick bade farewell to his parents for the last time, and sought a teacher who could prepare him for his quest. He found that teacher in Gaul, that's modern-day France, which was in a better state than Britain, being still a Roman province, protected from the barbarians. In Gaul, he came under the tutelage of Saint Germain of Auxerre, an important bishop in the Gallic Church. He would study and train in Gaul for the next 18 years, which is why there's a lively cult of Saint Patrick in the Loire Valley of central France, and many French folktales about him, too. For example, there used to be a bramble bush in the Loire Valley that flowered every Christmas time, considered a miracle amid the winter snow. The story goes that Patrick had slept under that bramble, leaving a trace of his holy presence behind him. Many visitors down the centuries verified this unusual flowering, but sadly, the bush was killed in the First World War. Whatever the truth of that story, after his training in France, Patrick went on pilgrimage to Rome, where he met Pope St. Celestine I, who, upon hearing his story, placed him in charge of an official mission to convert Ireland to Christianity. Patrick was consecrated a bishop on his way back through Italy, and was finally ready to embark for Ireland. Now, there had already been one Christian mission to Ireland, led by a Gallic saint named Palladius, but it doesn't seem to have drawn many converts. Palladius himself had been banished from Ireland by the King of Leinster, never to return, and the mission had been abandoned. The religion of pagan Ireland thus remained Druidism, the distinctly Celtic tradition of nature worship, maintained by a priestly caste known as Druids. These clerics were evidently learned men, schooled in law and governance as well as mythology, but they passed down their knowledge by the spoken rather than the written word which is why today we know so very little about them. We do know, at least, that there was a darker side to the Druidic religion than the mere worship of nature, a side involving human sacrifice. One of our main sources on the Druids, Julius Caesar, gives us the ghastly image of Druids burning their human victims alive inside of wicker men. And yes, the 70s horror film with Christopher Lee was inspired by this practice. While we don't know for sure if Wicker Man burnings actually happened, we are quite certain that the Druidic religion involved some form of human sacrifice. Archaeologists have found too many corpses that were clearly killed in a ritual way, like the famous bog mummies of Ireland to deny this element of the Celtic pagan past. But the reign of the Druids in Ireland was coming to an end, for Patrick's great mission was about to begin. 
the saint is said to have landed on the eastern coast of Ireland, near the promontory of Wicklow Head, in the year 482. Though, as I said at the start of today's episode, we can't really be certain about any of the dates in this story. His first act upon returning to Ireland was to return to his old master, the chieftain named Milhu, to pay him compensation for his runaway slave. This may seem very strange to us, but it tells us a lot about Patrick. In the saint's mind, even though he had obviously had a right to escape from his master, he wanted to show his forgiveness by paying the man back for his loss. He probably hoped that by this bold display of reconciliation, he might open his old master's ear to the truth of the Christian faith. But before he could meet with Milku, Patrick had to make the journey back up north, perhaps retreading the steps of his journey to the Ship of Freedom long ago. Along the way, he was accosted by another local chieftain, one of the many tribal warlords who ruled over Ireland. This was to be expected in ancient Ireland. You'll recall that the word Gale means pirates. You can perhaps imagine Ireland as the Tortuga of the Dark Ages. Getting waylaid by a bandit chief on the highway was just a fact of life. This chieftain's name was Jihu. Spying the unarmed Patrick, Jihu drew his sword and charged. But before he could strike the saints, his arm became firm as a statue and couldn't be moved, no matter how hard Jihu tried. This was Patrick's first miracle in Ireland. But the saint had mercy on his attacker, who was overwhelmed by Patrick's unimaginable blend of divine power and gentleness. Jihu at once pledged himself to Patrick's service, and became his loyal friend. The bandit chief soon converted to Christianity, and gave Patrick a barn to use as a church. In time, this barn was rebuilt into the monastery of Saul, from the old Irish word for barn, and Jehu himself would be remembered as a saint. You can still visit the site today in Northern Ireland's County Down. Continuing his journey north to the land where he'd once been a slave, Patrick arrived only to find the strongholds of his old master Milhu on fire, and Milhu himself burned to death in the flames. Patrick then learned that word of the miracle which had won over Jihu had spread up north, filling Milhu with spite at the thought of his old slave wielding such power. Unwilling to be subdued by the same kind of miracle, Milhu had set his house on fire and burned himself alive. It was a sad end to his master's story, but Patrick had work to do. Returning to his barn church at Saul, the saint heard news that the High King of Ireland, 
a man named Lager, nominal ruler over the island's many warlords, had summoned all the tribal chiefs to a great feast at the hill of Tara in Leinster, a sacred site for the coronation of high kings not far from modern-day Dublin. Providentially, it just so happened that this pagan festival coincided with Easter Sunday. So Patrick made his way to Tara, and on his way, he was warmly received by one of the local chiefs along the road, who soon converted to Christianity. The chieftain's son, a boy named Benan, was particularly entranced by Patrick's holiness and the truth of his Christian message, and begged to travel with him to Tara. The boy's father allowed it. Benin grew up to become a great singer, whose beautiful voice would aid Patrick in his mission for years to come. Today, he is also known as Saint Beninus. By the time Patrick reached Tara, his reputation had preceded him. The assembled great men of Ireland, chiefs, poets, and druids, had heard of this Christian stranger who is spreading his new faith wherever he went, and they were determined to put a stop to it. On the night before Easter, the High King declared that all fires must be extinguished until he himself lit the beacon on Tara to begin the pagan feast the following day. Patrick, learning of this, climbed a nearby hill on the opposite end of the valley from Tara, the Hill of Slain, and defied the king's order by lighting the traditional Easter fire on the crest of the hill. Watching on in rage from Tara, the druids demanded that the high king stop him, saying that the fire kindled by Patrick would burn forever in Ireland unless it was doused that night. So the High King sent his warriors to slay Patrick and extinguish the fire, but to no avail. Every warband that tried to climb the Hill of Slain was repulsed by divine power, so that no pagan was able to harm the saints or his sacred flame. The following morning, as dawn rose on Easter Sunday, Patrick and his small handful of followers, led by the boy Benin, proceeded down the hill of Slain, and across the valley toward Tara, with Patrick dressed in the full splendor of his bishop's regalia, wielding his crozier before him. The High King's warriors were now too terrified of the power they had faced during the night to stand in Patrick's way. So the druids had to resort to their spells, in a desperate effort to stop the saints. Led by the archdruid Lokru, they called upon the Celtic gods to cover the land in darkness. But, at a simple prayer from Patrick, the sun broke through their black clouds and filled the valley with light. As Patrick advanced still further toward Tara, Lokru himself levitated in the air above the hill, to intimidate the saint into submission. Patrick, in response, knelt down to pray. 
and at once the arch-druid was thrown to his death, with all the great men of Ireland looking on. You could say, that was the moment when druidism died. The chiefs of Ireland saw that Patrick's god was greater than any of their pagan idols, and they soon submitted to the Christian faith. The prophecy of the druids had turned out to be true after all. Patrick's fire would never go out. Patrick would spend the rest of his life establishing the faith in Ireland, traveling around the island as its first true bishop, founding churches and blessing countless holy sites that remain to this day. While there are many, many stories I could tell you about Patrick's later years, and I simply don't have time for all of them, there are two traditions you've definitely heard of that deserve to be explored. The first of these tales concerns Patrick and the Shamrock. I'm sure you know the story. When he proclaimed the faith to the assembled chiefs at Tara, Patrick is said to have plucked a three-leafed clover, or shamrock, from the grounds to explain the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. As there are three leaves in one clover, so Patrick is thought to have said, so too are there three persons in the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, it's admittedly hard to verify this story based on the written record. It doesn't appear in any of the early medieval sources, instead showing up for the first time that I'm aware of in the early modern era, more than a thousand years after Patrick's death. It may have been passed down by oral tradition from the time of Patrick himself, or it may have been made up in later centuries. But does it really matter? It's a great story, weaving the natural beauty of Ireland into the Christian truth that God is love, the perfect love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Whether or not Patrick ever really used a shamrock to impart this truth, it remains a lovely symbol of the Holy Trinity for the people of Ireland. The other story I'd like to highlight is a little more complicated. The famous legend that St. Patrick drove the snakes out of Ireland. I'll be blunt about this one. On a literal level, it's almost certainly not true. According to paleontologists, there have never been snakes in Ireland, so there wouldn't have been any for Patrick to expel. But I think that's seriously missing the point. Like so many great myths, the story is clearly true on a symbolic level, which is how legends should always be approached. You may already know that snakes in almost all cultures around the world are symbols of evil, and for Christians, they are especially symbolic of demons. Think of the serpent in the Garden of Eden, or the dragon slain by St. George. I suspect the origins of this symbol lie very deep in our history, as in our evolutionary history. What do I mean? Well, 
It turns out that pretty much all mammals are creeped out by reptiles. Cats, for example, are terrified of anything that even vaguely resembles a snake. If you don't know what happens when a cat sees a cucumber, I strongly suggest you look it up on YouTube. It's just a pet theory of mine, but I wonder if our natural fear of snakes may go all the way back to the Triassic period, more than 200 million years ago, when the first mammals, our distant ancestors on the physical side, were hunted by dinosaurs. Perhaps we've all maintained a sense that there's something creepy about reptiles since then. But that's just a theory. Take it or leave it. So if St. Patrick didn't literally drive the snakes out of Ireland, then what should we make of the tale? The earliest source linking Patrick with serpents is a 7th century biography written by a bishop named Tirahan. In this account, Patrick spent 40 days, presumably Lent, praying and fasting on a high mountain in the west of Ireland, known today as Crow Patrick. There he was attacked by a flock of demonic ravens, and by a diabolical serpent woman named Cora, whom he banished into a lake beneath the mountain. While this story doesn't say that Patrick drove all snakes out of Ireland, it does show that as early as the 7th century, the Irish thought of Patrick as a saint who had battled with a demonic serpent. In another 7th century text about an Irish saint, the life of St. Columba, we hear that Columba, rather than Patrick, rid Ireland of snakes. The two stories seem to have been confused over the course of the early Middle Ages, so that by the 12th century, we hear of Patrick as the man responsible for banishing the snakes. Ever since then, the story has stuck. Clearly the real message is not about snakes, but demons, with the snakes merely serving as symbols of the evil spirits whom Patrick chased away from the island. Given that Patrick defeated the druids and destroyed their cult of human sacrifice, I think it's perfectly fair to say that he drove the snakes out of Ireland. We'll close today's episode with a prayer attributed to St. Patrick himself, a hymn known as the Lorica, or Breastplate. This prayer was supposedly written by Patrick at the Hill of Slain on Easter Eve, the night before his great battle with the Druids. First recorded in Old Irish in the 11th century, but certainly much older, it has inspired Christians down the ages to fight the good fight with courage. So let's call upon St. Patrick to join us as we pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through a belief in the threeness, through a confession of the oneness of the Creator of creation. 
I arise today through the strength of Christ's birth and his baptism, through the strength of his crucifixion and his burial, through the strength of his resurrection and his ascension, through the strength of his descents for the judgments of doom. I arise today through the strength of the love of cherubim, in the obedience of angels, in the service of archangels, in the hope of resurrection to meet with reward, in the prayers of patriarchs, in the preaching of the apostles, in the faith of confessors, in the innocence of virgins, in the deeds of righteous men. I arise today through the strength of heaven, light of the sun, splendor of fire, speed of lightning, swiftness of the wind, depth of the sea, stability of the earth, firmness of the rock. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's shields to protect me, God's hosts to save me, from the snares of the devil, from the temptations of vices, from everyone who desires me ill, afar and anear, alone or in a multitude. I summon today all these powers between me and evil, against every cruel, merciless power that opposes my body and soul, against the incantations of false prophets, against the black laws of pagandom, against the false laws of heretics, against the craft of idolatry, against the spells of women and smiths and wizards, against every knowledge that corrupts man's body and soul. Christ shield me today against poison, against burning, against drowning, against wounding, so that reward may come to me in abundance. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ in the hearts of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks of me, Christ in the eye that sees me, Christ in the ear that hears me. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through a belief in the threeness, through a confession of the oneness, of the Creator, of creation. Amen. St. Patrick of Ireland is commemorated on the 17th of March. He is, of course, the chief patron of Ireland, along with many other places around the world, and is also a powerful protector against the afflictions of serpents, whether literal or spiritual. If you'd like to learn more about St. Patrick, and deepen your own devotion to this remarkable hero, and visit some of the holy sites in Ireland for yourself, I've included links to prayers and other resources 
in the show notes. May St. Patrick, the Apostle of Ireland, come to our aid now and always for the greater glory of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Happy St. Patrick's Day.